0: Chris Jones and his wife, Natalie, live in Salt Lake City, Utah, and are the parents of four children and grandparents of two. Chris is a fiercely creative entrepreneur who builds businesses and products that build people. He's a prolific writer whose work has been widely recognized as unflinchingly authentic, insightful, and an invitation to live a more examined life. Chris's work has since gained international attention as a place to journey into the often misunderstood world of grief, healing, and the pursuit of meaning. My interview with Chris today is all about grief, healing, and trauma, something that nobody wants to be an expert in from experience. But he's been through the trenches after losing his 10-year-old son, Mitchell, to Duchenne muscular dystrophy in 2013. Chris wrote, quote, Among the recurring themes of Mitchell's journey are the discussions of faith, making sense of sorrow, and reflections on love and loss. I suppose one could add to those themes the singularity of grief that after all is said and done, the journey of grief is traveled by one, unquote. His perspective on loss and suffering is one that touched me deeply when Neil and I met him in Hawaii last year at a personal development retreat. We also talk about Chris's work called A Thousand Points of Light. The idea that we all have points of light in our lives, even in our darkest moments, and they often intersect with the people around us without us even knowing. I always learn so much from Chris, and I'm really excited and grateful to share his wisdom and life experiences with you today. Chris, I'm so excited to talk to you today. We met a year, almost a year ago in Hawaii, and had some just life-changing, at least for me, life-changing experiences. And your presentation was truly a highlight of that trip for me. So I can't wait to share that. But before that, for anyone who isn't familiar with you and who you are and what you do, can you just give a brief little intro of all of that?
1: Yeah, sure. So my name's Chris Jones. I'm a father of four kids, been married for about 26 years. Most of my marriage, I've been an entrepreneur, just trying to build businesses and build companies and products that build people. That's been my number one attraction. And so doing that over the years, I've done a lot of work with the church, with EFY, producing media content for kids to come home from the camp and then practice teaching values and gospel-based lessons with family members. I think we learned the more we teach, the more we learn. So that was one strategy we employed with the youth for quite a while. And it it was a lot of fun to see that happen, see these kids and leaders talk about the changes that made in these kids' lives. You know, in recent years, I've been doing a lot of blogging and media production in this space of just trying to figure out what matters most and how to make meaning of our life experiences. So cool. I, I guess these days I wander a lot. I like to look for things that are important and often overlooked. And those things often get, and usually if a house is burning, i run into that, you know, wherever I see suffering, that's where I want to go.
0: Yeah. Well, you have a gift for that. I, I know this isn't going to be the focus, but your gift of being able to see, like you said, things that are often unseen and your photography and it's beautiful. It's a gift that I feel like I've never seen quite the same in anyone else. And so it's- mm, Thank you. You're welcome. And you have a really touching story about your son, Mitchell. So can we start there? Is that okay?
2: Sure. Okay. Yeah.
1: It really started, I'm sure, long before I was ever born that the story began to be put in motion. But I remember having a distinct feeling in high school that I would have the I would experience the loss of a son. Or not a really? son, a child. Did I even wow. had a dream about it, wrote down my memory of that and right after the dream. And I think in a way I was sort of prepared for something that would happen in the distant future. And so fast forward many years, you know, I graduated from high school, go on a mission, end up getting married as per usual, you know, and and then just a family started. and, And then we had two children, my daughter, Laura Ashley, and then Ethan, and then my third son, Mitchell, was born. And I remember in the delivery room, I had this distinct impression that I can't deny it. I, never, I mean, it, I, I knew something was immediately wrong, but right. there was no indication that there were physical problems. he seemed like a normal baby. Mm-hmm. So for the next three years, I had this recurring impression that something was off
2: mm-hmm. and
1: he was normal, but he was a little behind his milestones. But again, it was no big deal. Like kids do that all the time. Right. I remember I was talking to my father-in-law and other people close to me that I had this feeling and they're like, Oh, you know what? It, it's just, you're just being weird. It's okay. And I knew different. I knew better. And so I get a phone call one day and my wife calls me and says, Hey, I need you to come to Schmeiner's hospital. We got to meet with the doctor. And I'm like, Oh, you know, today's really busy. Can I just, can you loop me in? She goes, you, they say you need a beer. So I get there. They tell us our son has been diagnosed with a catastrophic muscle wasting disease. That's a hundred percent fatal. It's called Duchenne muscular dystrophy. There are many strands or types of Duchenne. Duchenne is the most common and also one of the most severe, So, it, but it's it happens slowly. And so when a child is born, their body often outpaces muscle wasting until they turn about 10, 11, 12. And at that point, the muscle wasting becomes more pronounced. The body stops growing so fast, and then the muscle wasting starts to take over. Typically, they, they're they not able to even lift their hand to feed themselves by their teens, mid-teens, by, you know, in the 20s, earlier before current interventions, they would be on a respirator likely to help them breathe because the diaphragm is also run by muscles that no longer work. So it just becomes very problematic. Swallowing becomes impossible eventually. And, and typically, people with the condition will end up passing away from a variety of things happening, muscle-wasting-related Effect. So my son, he was 9 years old at the time. We go into the doctor to go just a regular checkup and they do a heart exam because the heart's a muscle too. That's usually one of the latest muscles, the last muscles, the later muscles to get affected. And okay. Mitchy, his heart was deeply affected by that really earlier than expected. So we got on a bunch of medicines, nothing worked and it seemed like No matter what medical intervention within a year, it was like his body was falling like a rock off a cliff, and there was nothing medicine, no intervention would do anything. We ended up petitioning for a heart transplant, and that was denied. Then we, so fast forward a few more months, and he's now home on hospice with heart failure. And so we had him for about a month at home, and that was a tender time. And about this time, I started really journaling my son's story. I don't know why. I usually I'm a pretty private guy. You Mm -hmm. know, my neighbors, I love them, I'm friends with them, but I they don't know our details. But I was pretty open about this for some reason. It became kind of a therapy for me. And then that began a blog and a journey of examining the meaning of suffering and what to make of our life experiences.
0: Wow. Yeah. This Mitchell story is such a What I'm really impressed by is that you took something and you're very real about it and very raw. And it's not sometimes, and I'm sure that this is well-meaning and maybe it's for the best from some perspectives, but I feel like sometimes when people go through something that's just horrific, it kind of gets candy coated and then, and all of the pain and suffering goes away and only the positive or the lemonade gets shared, and I love that you've done such a beautiful job of sharing all of it in a way that's healing and helpful for people to feel validated in their suffering. So why was that important to you?
2: For
1: people to feel validated in their suffering?
0: Just to feel, I I feel like that's been something that, as I've heard you share about this on social media and even in person when I heard your story at first, that that was kind of a driving force for you. Am I right in assuming that?
1: Very much, yeah, yeah. It, it, wow. There's so many answers to that, but I, I feel like sharing our story was so helpful. One, it wasn't like I needed people to rescue me from my hurt because no one could. You know, I, I wrote in one blog post that after all is said and done, the journey of grief is traveled by one. My wife and I both lost our son. But we go to bed each night in our own heads, and as much as I wish I could get inside my wife's head and comfort her in her mind, I cannot, no matter how hard I wish or pray or dream. That is hers and hers alone. And same with me, because we have a really special, unique relationship with the people we love or the thing that that hurt us or helped us. And so I've learned to acknowledge that and and talk about it freely, because uh, a lot of times people find... In hearing the suffering or or stories of others, they hear and see themselves, Mm. even a part of themselves. And so by watching people heal, by hearing something that made a difference to them really helped heal me. I think it was Elder Holland once taught that the heavenly paradox is the only way to save yourself is to save others. Mm. And by extension, you know, the only way to help ourselves is to help others, to lose ourselves in love and service of others. And so I found a great, that was sort of my therapy.
0: Yeah, that's a beautiful answer. What were some of the things that you did to heal? I know it's been a long journey and that it's still continuing. That's something that I learned when I went through the closest account with grief that I've had was my brother-in-law who died a few years ago. And I've definitely learned that it's it's never ending. It never goes away. But what have been some of the things that you've done to experience or how do you teach people that healing can
1: come? I love that. I'm an English major. And one of my professors once taught that writing is closer to thinking than speaking. Mm. So when by writing out, by journaling, you really start to work out what goes on. That helped me heal a lot. And it wasn't just like, oh, this hurts. This hurts, right? That's unproductive. I mean, it's helpful sometimes to say, oh, these are the things that are hurting me. But what then? Like, what do we do once we see that this hurts? And so for me, part of that healing process was making time for grief. Okay. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes it'll come and hit you when you least expect it. But as I started to plan, I would do it in my writing sessions. I became my own therapist. Writing was both my therapy and my therapist, you know, Mm -hmm. and by doing that journaling and making meaning of it by saying this happened, it really hurt. And this is the good I'm going to pull out of this. This is what meaning this has to me. That did a lot to help me heal. Also, by losing myself in the stories of others, by listening and holding space to people in their sorrows, whether they lost a child, a job, self-confidence, so many other things, like just by sitting there and going, I see you. And yes, I get it. That makes so much sense. They felt a degree of healing. And so did I. By There's a spiritual practice we often talk about is mourning with those that mourn, which mm-hmm. I think is one of the most sacred principles in all of spiritual grit. I don't know that we know how to do that very well because suffering's so hard. We look at it. We're not familiar with it. We want to pull away. That's uncomfortable.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Mourning with those that mourn can be really a blessing, even when you're the one mourning.
0: Right. That's so true. And I feel like in the past, sometimes I'm frozen by not knowing, not wanting to say the wrong thing. I feel like that's a fear of mine, or saying something that's going to make it worse. So that hesitation sometimes has held me back from mourning with those that mourn. So what was an effective way that you felt that from others or that you've learned in time of really being in the trenches with this, that what's the most effective way you think to mourn with those that mourn?
1: I love that question. It's such a compassionate question there exists no words in the English or any dictionary to that will truly take the pain away. Mm -hmm. So we don't have to worry about saying perfect words. And if we're worried about stumbling, sometimes we can say, look, I'm probably going to say the the dumbest things are going to hurt you. And I don't mean to, I just want you to know I care. And I think that's the most important thing we can possibly say to somebody that suffers is I can't imagine what you're going through. I just want you to know that I care. And if Mm -hmm. you want me to sit on your doorstep and just read a book in case you need me. I'm there, you know, metaphorically or physically. So I think it's less what we say and how we show up with our hearts that mm-hmm. make the biggest difference. When you just, when you know somebody cares and sees it, then boy, it, magic starts to happen.
0: Yeah. Do you have any experiences or something that comes to mind when you were grieving and had lost Mitchell? Did someone do something or did someone show up in a way that? really helped you that you can think of?
1: Yeah, I lots of examples and kind of microcosms of what maybe I just described, which was saying, hey, I this is so beyond my experience. I don't know the first thing to do, but I'll stand beside you as long as you need me. And that was beautiful and that was helpful. But I think I spent most of my time almost comforting more people, other people than myself mm-hmm. by the writing and then responding. Like I immediately started writing before his passing and long after where I maybe took more of the role of holding space for others. But what I did notice are things that weren't helpful, which Mm. is things like, hey, life's but a blink, Mm -hmm. all those kind of spiritual platitudes, which may be true, but completely unhelpful and antithetical to what it means to mourn with those that mourn. Because mourning with those that mourn is to say, oh, I can see how much of this hurts. I'm going to sit with you and imagine your sorrow. And we'll talk about sunday school lessons later Mm -hmm. but let me just hold you right now because i know it hurts you know right when we can do a bit of both and just boy it's it can be super beautiful
0: so where does and this is something i haven't even thought about until now but where does the intersection happen where some of those truths come into play and they are helpful in an eternal perspective i mean is that just like a matter of letting the Spirit tell you when it's time to start looking at those things or time to suggest something like that? Or I don't know if I'm asking this in the right way, but... No,
1: I love the question. I, I mean, I feel like maybe it's less than what we say and the questions we ask. Mm-hmm. So how do you feel about, for example, instead of telling people maybe what they already know, ask them how they feel about the things they already know. Sometimes I think we get so conditioned to talking, teaching, telling, mm. proselytizing rather than asking questions and pulling out. Elder Maxwell once taught a beautiful lesson that teaching isn't always telling, it's asking questions about things we already know. We don't need a Sunday school lesson in grief. When we're grieving, we need a heart and a hand to hold us Mm -hmm. and then let the spirit prepare us when we're ready, maybe.
0: Yeah, that's so thoughtful. I love that. Okay, I really want to have time to talk about a thousand points of light because when I saw you present that, it was. A paradigm shift, I don't even know that that's adequate, but just really, really captivating to me, and it felt it rang true. There was something in my heart that when I watched it i said this is this is truth, so can you share I know it it's kind of complex, but can you share the philosophy of a thousand points of light?
1: Yeah, thanks for asking. This is what I feel like my son Mitchell's gift to me was after he passed. And it took about a year for the gift to become visible. And then after that, as I started to work through it and think about it, it became clear. And I'm still very much a student of it. But basically, I'll tell it through very quickly, a quick story I wrote called Nightfall on my blog. And this was the night my son passed away. And I I journaled the events leading up to. And can I just mention, too, it was interesting. People would come to our door the night he passed away and would knock on the door. We wouldn't answer because we were in his room, Mm -hmm. you know. Bring him while he was going to pass, and people would leave gifts at the door, and they'd text me. I had four distinct people that don't even know each other said, "I don't know what's going on in there, and in their own words would say things like, "I felt like I was walking among a crowd of angels. It was really, really special,' it was sacred, so fast forward a few hours i'm I'm in the room, we're sleeping on the floor, and I was dead asleep i I was so tired, my wife was so tired, we're sleeping on the floor Mitchell's on the bed. And we knew he was going to go, but we didn't know if we had a few hours, a day. It was, but it was soon. So I pass out. And, you know, out of a scale from one to 10, I was asleep like 110. I was so <laughs> tired.
0: Yeah. And
1: then instantly I woke up like somebody had like shaken my soul from the other side. And I went from 110 in sleep all the way to 110 awake. And I had this distinct feeling, Tuck Mitchell in. So I go tuck him in and I I, I give him a little, uh, some encouragement. I, you know, I tell him like, I'm so proud of you. And literally when I grow up, I want to be just like you. He's just, he taught me so many beautiful things. And I, 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 I told him it was okay when it was time to go and that he would be okay. This all relates to the points of light thing. I go to bed about a half hour later. My wife says, Chris immediately woke up again and uh, he had passed, and so th- that began the darkest moment of my life, and I remember feeling this deep existential where you know, oh God, where art thou mm-hmm. kind of feeling, and uh where's the pavilion that hides your you know your your hiding place and so it i I experienced that, and as I contemplated what had happened and all the things that happened, even just a few hours where I was awakened so unexpectedly, so supernaturally in a way it was a spiritual experience. I began to discern little points of light in my life. It was like as though I looked up at the ceiling and started to recognize tiny, tender mercies, little blessings, big and small. And I started to see that they were connected. Mm. So what I once thought was a life covered in darkness was in fact woven in a tapestry of light. So all these little blessings in my life, I started to, like you said, in the very beginning of the podcast, Connecting the dots. And that's exactly what this is, but spiritually, and using our life experiences as points of light. Some points of light are red, like heart, others might be blue, like a spiritual impression. You know, green, I used to think of as somebody felt inspired to do something on my behalf.
2: Mm. So,
1: points of light is kind of a metaphor to look at the events of our life and determine what meaning and connection they have for us. So, when life gets dark, I can look up, as it were, metaphorically, and see the beautiful connections. And like an ancient navigator, I can look to the heavens and get my bearing, and realize that maybe I haven't been alone ever. Does that make sense? Yes,
0: yes, it's all making perfect sense. And then there was another level that you taught us about, where people can see that their points of light connect or intersect. Or what's the what's the correct yeah term for that?
1: Connect, yeah, absolutely, or intersect, yeah. Eventually, I want to create a platform where people can do this digitally and then invite people in and say, you have a really interesting side of the same story. Can you tell me your journey leading up to this shared point of light? Mm. And then I begin to realize that our lives are so interconnected in ways that I don't even imagine. And I'm doing the work and I'm beginning to continue to receive these deeper connections and intersections in people's lives. So yeah, it's it's by the recognition that tender mercies happen and then how they intersect is is at the second side of that experience and it's powerful.
0: One thing that might be super interesting just right in this moment would be to hear your perspective, because I know what Hawaii was for me last year and the many blessings and healing that Neil received and the healing that I received from having two miscarriages and finding out in Hawaii that we were pregnant and Lindsay saying this really special prayer. There were all these things that happened that were extremely meaningful to me, but I don't really know what your experience was there. So it would be so interesting for me if you, I don't know if it's not too personal, whatever your point of light or points of light were where we were in the same space physically, but you were obviously experiencing something totally different than me.
1: It was interesting going there. I just had this tug to go and it's out of character for me to go to things like this because I tend to want to be invisible, quiet and quick. Mm. And I enjoy watching people more than than anything else. So I went a little out of my comfort zone because I was in a social setting with people with whom I barely knew or didn't know at all. Right Then I meet you and your husband. You guys were so lovely and kind. And I just remember watching the beauty of your faith roll out before everybody. It was so beautiful to watch the struggle, the worry, the hope, the faith, the prayers, sitting with people. Zara, for example, Mm. Lindsay's sister-in-law. Was that right, sister-in-law?
0: I think she is maybe a niece. I think she's her
1: niece. That's it. Yeah, that's it. But I love Zara, right? And sitting with her, having lost her father and just seeing her tender heart, making meaning of her experience. And this is my reality. What am I going to do with this? And so that was so beautiful and tender, but making friends and feeling a degree of healing in my own heart in mm. other ways other than grief was very present in that trip. So I, I for me, one of the greatest points that light that experience was healing and connection with others.
0: And that is so cool to hear your perspective and that you had, like even with Zara. So for me, with Zara, after we said, we said like this big group prayer, it was really powerful where everyone, and I've never done anything like this before. And I don't remember whose suggestion it was, but everyone took a turn and said a prayer. It was a really long prayer, but we all stood in a circle and And everyone had a chance to offer their portion of prayer. And after that, she came up and gave me this really warm hug and a kiss on the cheek. And I just felt so much pure love from her. So it's very interesting to hear like your experience with her and my experience. And in my mind, I feel like that's exactly what you're talking about with these thousand points of light, where it was a point of light where it almost burst with love and light. And yet we all took from that experience something just a little bit different.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And the cool is you get to take that point of light for you and put it in your pocket. And when it gets dark, you get to pull it out and go, that happened. Yeah. And it matters. And it can illuminate the path beneath my feet when life gets dark.
0: Yeah. And when Lindsay met our baby Bobby, she, I felt like we had that another point of light where she met him in the flesh and said, this baby changed my life and maybe I'll have to have Lindsay on again someday where we can talk more about that. But what a cool just concept of all of these points of light that actually connect us and that our human experiences are so much more similar than they are different.
1: Totally. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I love that you've given a name for that because I feel like I've kind of known that for a long time, but it's really cool to have something to be able to identify it with.
1: Thank you for that. And I don't, I, I can't take credit for any of that, or even think it's halfway original. Like we, I think when people see it, they go, oh yeah, it's like one of those common sense things that once we hear it, we're like, yeah, that finally puts, makes, puts a word or a metaphor to something I might've naturally intuitively felt. And I found that people from different walks of life, whether they're atheist or of any religion, that they look at it with deep curiosity, going, "Where's my path? What's my story?"
0: Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you also about trauma because I feel like you've spoken a lot about that, shared a lot about it, and it's something that I feel like is a buzzword in in pop culture right now, and and is sometimes misunderstood, and can be in a good way and in a bad way, and. So and maybe it's neither. Maybe it's just neutral. But I would love to hear some of your thoughts on trauma and how you've processed that and, and what you've taught people about
1: trauma. I love that question. I agree that the word trauma, like so many other pop culture words, can almost be used to a point where it loses its meaning
2: mm-hmm.
1: a little bit. It becomes a label to, or an excuse or a hall pass to, to behave or think a certain way rather than going, yeah, something hard happened. I think that there's two things that I teach when I go out and speak to groups about whether it's the examined life or through, or if I talk about grief or other topics in a similar orbit, I'll say often, if we're lucky, we'll have a trauma early in our life
2: hmm. because
1: it's only when we have traumas that we actually begin to kind of crack open the superficiality of life, this connection from how hard it can be. Because we're not defined by the good things that happen to us we're defined by the hard things you know those things are the things that shape us and polish us and so to learn to look at hardship and trauma as a tutor or a teacher is hard and sacred work but some of the most important work we'll ever do I have had a lot of experiences with trauma you know from a my first stepfather was just a really mean, dark, angry soul. And you know that was when I was growing up in my formative years. So I I knew what wrath and anger felt like. Mm. My biological dad was sad and lonely. And so I know what that kind of trauma feels and looks like by at least by observing it. And then losing my son, of course, that trauma has taught me that we can all do hard things. And that's not necessarily, it's not original thought to me either, but I've realized that what I thought was impossible to endure is 100% endurable. It's kind of how well we do it. So trauma, I would just look, if I were to talk to somebody about trauma, I would encourage people to look at as how can this become my tutor or my teacher? And I think that when I start to look at my trauma as my teacher and not just say, ow, this hurts, but now what am I going to learn from this? Mm -hmm. That's the biggest difference maker. That's
0: really profound. I really think it's super interesting too, what you said about It's a gift to have trauma early in your life because I feel like as a mom of five pretty young kids, you know, ranging from an infant to 10-year-old, I'm constantly worried about my kids going through something traumatic that's going to, you know, scar them for life. And I feel like the more years go on in parenting, the more I just realize this is God's way is to teach us through hard things like you're talking about. But how have you learned as a parent to coach your children through trauma and through hard things?
1: What a great question. They're all so different. They all have all the kids, you know, as all of us with more than one kid will realize they have different operating systems and they didn't come with a playbook. So we just don't know their code until we're really listening to them. And So with each of my boys, I, I was blessed to really sit down and talk to them about not only kind of our spiritual traditions, but other spiritual traditions in the world that can contribute and tools that can help them process their heart, their their struggle. Mm. So having open conversations when they're ready and never really imposing a conversation on them. If they, they didn't want to talk about it, it was okay. Like we didn't ever need to talk about it unless they wanted to. And then when they were, there was no such thing as a bad thought. There were helpful and less helpful thoughts, but nothing was Bad or uh, prohibited to to talk about a question or whatever. And my sweet daughter, you know, she had already kind of was right at the tail end of high school. And I wish I knew during the early years of our grief when she was in high school how I could have been there for her a bit more. But watching her now become a mom and to two beautiful children and her wife, I mean, she is just so beautiful. I'm so proud of her. But I wished I could have held her differently in the early years. But it's so bewildering. You just do the best you can. Talk as often as you as you need to and let them know that it's okay to cry or not cry.
0: Yeah. And I love what you said about there are no bad thoughts because I think sometimes even as adults, we're afraid of our thoughts or we're afraid that some thoughts are going to mean like almost validate that we're bad or that we're unworthy. And the truth is we all have bad thoughts. We all have none of us walk around like perfect angels with perfect pure thoughts all day long, even if that's something just like self-deprecating or, or something that's not perfectly kind or charitable about another person. I mean, we're all imperfect people walking around having imperfect thoughts all the time. So I love that you are holding space for that with your children and allowing them to process through the good and the bad and not just make them feel like if they're going to open their mouths, it all has to be good and appropriate and right. Because that's not what's going on in any of our heads as perfectly appropriate thoughts 100% of the time.
1: That's right. Yeah. We learn by making mistakes and correcting it and seeing the difference between what hurt me and what helped me.
0: What have you learned about time passing? I feel like when Neil's brother Dave died four years ago or a little over four years ago, I wanted to know how long it would be hell. I wanted to know, this is the time frame of how long it's going to be before life kind of goes back to normal. Mm-hmm. And the most maddening answer that everyone kept giving me is it never goes away and you never get better. You just learn to live with it. All these things that are technically true, but drove me crazy and, and made me feel like, okay, but I do know people who have been through horrific grief. And they do seem to get better. So what is the truth and and how can I as a sane person digest this beginning stages of grief and trauma and and know that it's not going to be like this forever? I still feel like I don't know how to express that or to to help people with that. But I wish someone could have explained it in a better way to me. I don't know. Is that possible? Is there a possible way to... To process through that in a way that doesn't feel just like, no, actually, you just stepped into hell and that's the way your life will look for the rest of your days. Because that's not true, right? But
1: That's such a good question. And give me a second and I'll I'll talk about it from maybe two perspectives. Yes, First, I'm reminded of an old Jewish proverb that says, don't pray for lighter burdens, pray for a stronger back. Mm. And I found a distinct difference between people, if you were to imagine your grief, as a boulder, and you're chained to it, and it will never—that chain will never remove, like it'd be taken off. There's no key to it. You will carry it until you die. Okay. Like for example, you lose a loved one. Yes. You will live with that for the rest of your life. But the difference between those that grow and and move along in their journey of of healing mm-hmm. are those that learn how to put that boulder on their shoulders and walk forward, mm-hmm. instead of those that circle the chain and just say, "Ah, this is heavy. This hurts." So just by practicing putting grief on our shoulder and taking the next best step, what does that look like? It could be reading a, a, a useful book to help me reframe my sorrow or to hear the sorrow of someone else and go, oh, you know, I'm, I have a lot in common with that person. I've learned from their story. And so now I'm taking a step forward instead of just saying, ow, 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 <laughs> ow, because that doesn't serve themselves or any, anybody. So I, I think of that. And there was a second part, but I, I don't remember what that one was.
0: Well, I think what you're getting at is, I think it's reframing it in a better way of, yeah, it doesn't ever go away. But if you choose to, you can become stronger and hold it in a more productive way. And I've watched Neil do that. I think that some of that happened while we were in Hawaii last year, where Neil went through a long, and we've we've openly talked about this on our podcast, he went through a long phase of anger in his grief. And then Mm -hmm. I think that he... Came to his own realization when he was ready to say, I don't want to carry it this way anymore. I want to carry it in a different way that still holds space for what he lost. But he said, I'm sick of drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. The other person being the person that took his brother's life when he killed him. And I think that what you're saying does make a lot of sense to me. But as far as time passing for others, where you observed all your family members going through different phases of grief and different paces and different ways of processing things, how do you feel like, what advice would you give to someone who sees their loved one processing grief and you have no idea how long that's going to last or what the time frame is going to be like for them to... Mm. Not pass through it. You don't ever like get over it, but I just mean like progress through it. Yeah.
2: Progress.
1: Yeah. 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 I feel like one last thing to the time thing is often. time doesn't heal anything. Mm. It's like if you're working out, you're working out your muscles, right? There's a biological process where your muscles are breaking down Mm. and they get stronger because your body's producing biological effects to create strength, to repair the muscle, right? So time isn't making you stronger, but exercise is. So in the same way with grief, there are things we can do to exercise our minds and our hearts to become stronger. The passage of time has no bearing. It's only an indicator that time has passed, but time won't fix it. Mm. It might make it feel distant in a far memory, but if we haven't processed it, it kind of becomes malignant and it shows up in other ways. Grief does if we don't process it. It can stay dormant for 20, 30 years and the next thing that person's addicted to alcohol or, you know, an alcoholic or whatever, you know, because they're now washing away this pain that they didn't know how to otherwise handle. So with my kids, with each of them, it was really a matter of you know my youngest was so afraid of being alone he mm. would yell at, mom mom like where are you cuz having lost a brother and realizing the permanency of death he was afraid just by very nature of losing his brother for his own health so we we took some time to really help him my son that was a little older 16 17 well i know i think he was no, i think he was probably 12 13 he began in his early teens processing grief and then got caught up in high school and just now as a 20 two year old, 23 year old, he is processing grief still. And mm-hmm. so we talk about it. And what does that mean for you? And and my daughter, you know, bless her heart. I think she really works hard to build her family and really be there for her kids in every way she knows how to be. And that's also healing for now for her. But being able to talk to them whenever they need or want to has probably been the most helpful part.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting how you explain to some of the different fears and triggers and things that each person went through. and it is helpful to know that there's no two paths that are exactly the same through that process and that it it does just kind of take whatever it takes for that person to be ready for their next step in the progression. And you can't probably a lot like addiction recovery that we have a lot of experience with in our house. Um, you can't make someone be ready until they're ready on their own. Well, Chris, I have so enjoyed this conversation and learned a lot. I always learn so much when I'm around you, and anytime I see anything that you've written or that you've shared. So, my last question for you is: if there's one message that you would want the people listening to this episode to remember, what what is that one message?
2: Hmm.
1: I would hope that people would. Try to expand their awareness of the most important person in their life, which is the person that lives inside their mind and heart.
2: Mm.
1: Are we kind to ourselves as we're trying to heal, trying to grow and and to be aware that we are like anyone else, just needs grace to make mistakes, to stumble and to get on our feet again and take the next best step. Secondly, to be aware of the suffering of others, and so not just be aware of our own suffering, and feel deeply what it means to heal and to hurt but also see that in other people, to see the invisibles, to walk down the street and see somebody that may have a handicap. And if they're in a wheelchair or just kneel down and say, tell me your story. And you don't have to, that's not an embarrassing question. And oftentimes they're like, you see me? Mm. And it's just interesting how beautiful life can become when we forget our own sad stories and start looking at the stories of other people because we also see ourselves in others. And when we see each other, beautiful things happen. So awareness of seeing ourselves in others would probably be my number one.
0: Incredible, I love that. And I, it is such a gift to know you and to observe you living your life in that way. It's really inspiring. So where can people find you, Chris, if they want to follow along with things that you're teaching and writing and sharing?
1: Well, on Facebook is probably my biggest audience. Mitchell's Journey. Uh, you can go to mitchellsjourney.org, which is the website for that foundation where I talk about and examine life. They can also find my work on a thousand points of light.com, which is where I'm doing that other work on helping people identify the points of light in their life.
0: Okay, and you have a TED talk that's going yeah. to be live soon yeah, as well, about right? About a month. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Well, we will share all of those things in the show notes. And thanks again, so much, Chris. This was a
1: gift Thank day. you, thank you so much.
0: Thanks so much for listening to Mint Arrow messages. Make sure you follow us on Instagram at Mint Arrow.